Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our May 2014 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Among veterans in need of treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, 50 to 90 percent either attend an insufficient number of therapy visits or do not initiate therapy at all. Factors associated with lack of treatment or dropout include PTSD avoidance symptoms, fear of stigmatization, and logistical problems. A recent randomized trial funded by the Department of Defense evaluated the clinical equivalence of delivering evidence-based therapy via video teleconferencing. The objective was to see if this mode of treatment would be as effective as traditional face-to-face treatment. 125 male reservists, guardsmen, and veterans living in rural areas and suffering from PTSD were treated using cognitive processing therapy in small groups of four to eight. Treatment attendance was high, and PTSD symptom severity scores indicated that cognitive processing therapy delivered by a teleconferencing was non-inferior to treatment delivered in person. Significant reductions in symptoms occurred and were maintained during follow-up. High levels of therapeutic alliance, treatment compliance, and satisfaction were reported with no significant differences between conditions. The authors conclude that clinical video teleconferencing services could provide an effective means of delivering specialty mental health care to populations where services may not otherwise be available. Migraine headache commonly occurs with bipolar disorder and is more prevalent in women than in men. The authors of this article hypothesize that the occurrence of migraine and bipolar disorder would differ by gender, and that in particular, women with migraine would be more likely to have bipolar II disorder, rapid cycling, anxiety disorders, and suicide attempts. In a retrospective analysis, the authors compared migraine clinical variables of interest and mood outcome in over 400 subjects with bipolar disorder and 157 healthy controls. This study received support from the University of Michigan and the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Study results showed that migraine was more common in subjects with bipolar disorder than in healthy controls and more women than men had migraine with bipolar disorder. However, migraine in men was associated with bipolar II disorder and mixed symptoms. Migraine was associated with an earlier age at onset of bipolar disorder and with more severe and more frequent depression during longitudinal follow-up. Childhood trauma and high neuroticism were associated with migraine. Protective factors included high family adaptability and high extroversion. The authors conclude that clinicians should be alert for migraine comorbidity in women and in men with bipolar II disorder. 
effective treatment of migraine may impact mood outcome in bipolar disorder as well as headache outcome. Joint pathophysiological mechanisms between migraine and bipolar disorder may be important pathways for future study of treatments for both disorders. Augmentation with second-generation antipsychotics is the only pharmacological treatment alternative approved by the FDA for patients with incomplete response to antidepressants. Yet little is known about its prevalence in clinical practice. In a study funded by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, a group of investigators examined 12 years of data from the National Ambulatory Medical Care Survey to estimate national trends in use of adjunctive antipsychotics for adult non-psychotic depression. The data included visits in which depression was diagnosed but excluded visits with diagnoses for other antipsychotic indications, such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, and those without an antidepressant prescription. The study found a 2.5-fold increase in adjunctive use of second-generation antidepressants in adult depression visits over the study period. Rates went from 4.6% in 1999 to 2000 to 12.5% in 2009 to 2010. Similar increases were observed between various demographic and clinical subgroups. Antipsychotic augmentation was particularly common in visits to psychiatrists, visits with diagnosed major depressive disorder, and visits covered by public insurance. The authors conclude that during this period, SGAs became increasingly accepted in the outpatient treatment of adult non-psychotic depression. They caution that carefully examining the long-term benefits and risks of such treatment is vital to guide clinical decision-making in patients who have inadequate response to antidepressants. Borderline Personality Disorder, or BPD, is a severe psychiatric disorder characterized by significant impairments in cognitive, affective, and interpersonal domains. Psychiatric comorbidity is common in individuals with BPD, especially those with complex comorbidity, which involves having multiple psychiatric diagnoses, including a mix of internalizing and externalizing disorders. Research on psychiatric comorbidity in adolescents with BPD is limited, and no studies to date have investigated complex comorbidity in adolescents with BPD. Understanding patterns of psychiatric comorbidity is important, especially in youths in whom disorders are not yet fully developed, and further insight into these patterns will provide the foundation for tailoring effective early interventions. In this study funded by the Child and Family Program of the Menninger Clinic, the authors investigated psychiatric comorbidity in a sample of adolescent inpatients with and without a diagnosis of BPD. A multi-method approach to the assessment of BPD and psychiatric disorders was employed through the use of both self-reports and parent reports, as well as questionnaire-based and interview-based measures. Symptoms were assessed both dimensionally and categorically. 
similar to findings in previous studies of both adults and adolescents with BPD, this study found significant psychiatric comorbidity in adolescent inpatients with BPD in comparison to psychiatric patients without BPD. More importantly, these findings provide evidence for complex comorbidity in adolescents with BPD, suggesting that the presence of multiple co-occurring psychiatric disorders across the internalizing-externalizing spectrum may serve as an early marker for underlying BPD symptomatology. Low-dose ketamine is an N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor antagonist with rapid-acting antidepressant effects. Research has shown these effects to be relatively sustained in depressed patients who have not responded to traditional antidepressants. And these patients have experienced sustained antidepressant effects about one week after a single dose. Because ketamine has shown such promise, a critical need exists to better identify the clinical and treatment characteristics associated with acute and sustained antidepressant response to ketamine in individuals with major or bipolar depression. By pooling data from studies conducted at the National Institute of Mental Health, the authors of this article examined factors among treatment-resistant patients with either major depression or bipolar depression who received a single infusion of low-dose ketamine over 40 minutes. This study received funding from the NIMH and the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation. The authors found that higher body mass index, or BMI, family history of alcohol use disorder in a first-degree relative, and no lifetime history of suicide attempts significantly predicted better antidepressant response to ketamine. Higher BMI and no personal history of suicide attempts were associated with rapid response to ketamine, while family history of alcoholism was associated with durability of response to ketamine's antidepressant effects. The authors conclude that while these findings are interesting, they will need to be replicated in other samples. They hope that continued investigation of clinically significant predictors of positive antidepressant response to ketamine by their research group and others will pave the way for future individualized treatments for depression. Many antipsychotic drugs, including perfenazine, are routinely administered in a divided dosage regimen because of their relatively short plasma half-lives. But whether this regimen is actually necessary has never been extensively investigated until now. The objective of this study, which was supported by the National Institute of Mental Health, was to evaluate the impact of once versus twice daily dosing of perfenazine on clinical outcomes in patients with schizophrenia. Data from Phase 1 of the Clinical Antipsychotic Trial of Intervention Effectiveness, or CATI, Schizophrenia Study, were used. Patients with schizophrenia who were randomly allocated to treatment with perfenazine were also randomly assigned to once-daily or twice-daily dosing and followed for 18 months. A total of 257 patients were studied. 133 patients were included in the once-daily dosing group and 124 patients in the twice-daily group. 
the two primary outcomes were discontinuation rate and time to discontinuation between the two dosing groups. Results showed no significant differences were found in these two outcomes. Similarly, there were no significant differences in efficacy outcome measures between the two dosing groups, that is, changes in psychopathology and attitude towards medication. Further, no significant differences were observed in safety outcome measures between the two dosing groups, that is, changes in extrapyramidal symptoms, body weight, and the rates of the patients who experienced treatment-emergent adverse events. The present findings indicate that despite a pharmacokinetic rationale supporting dosing of perfenazine at least twice daily, the once-daily dosing produces similar clinical outcomes. These findings also suggest it may be necessary to revisit the long-standing axiom that antipsychotic dosing be established based on peripheral pharmacokinetics. The authors of this article set out to examine whether the youngest children in a class are more likely to be referred to mental health services. The research design drew its sample from England, where the cutoff date for school entry is September 1st. Therefore, a child born in August will be among the youngest in his or her class, while those born in September will be among the oldest. The researchers obtained dates of birth for all children referred to mental health services in West London for a period of four years. By comparing the birth months of the referred children to birth month frequencies in the population, they show that children born in August are overrepresented in the referrals, while those born in September are underrepresented. The authors conclude that being among the youngest in a school class is associated with a higher risk of mental health problems, while being among the oldest is a protective factor. The study complements a body of existing work showing that children who are young relative to their classmates do worse in a number of dimensions, including school results, university attainment, and professional sports. Compared with the general population, adults with serious mental illness have shortened life expectancies and high rates of illness, including diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Cardiovascular disease-related illness and death in this population may be due to the direct effects of illness, medications used to treat serious mental illness, disparities in access and quality of health care, and modifiable behavioral risk factors. The authors of this article conducted a systematic review to identify ways to improve cardiovascular risk factors in adults with serious mental illness. Two reviewers independently screened citations and identified 33 randomized controlled trials of at least two months' duration that enrolled adults with serious mental illness. The reviewers evaluated pharmacologic or behavioral interventions targeting weight, glucose, or lipid control. The study was supported by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. The author's review found that for weight control, moderate evidence supports behavioral interventions, and more limited evidence supports metformin, topiramate, or aripiprazole as an adjunctive agent, or aripiprazole as an antipsychotic switching strategy. 
Evidence was insufficient for all other interventions and for effects on glucose and lipid control. The authors conclude that given the current lack of evidence for interventions designed specifically for serious mental illness, increasing guideline concordant care for patients with serious mental illness could be considered a starting point for reducing cardiovascular disease risk. Comparative effectiveness studies are needed to test multimodal strategies, agents known to be effective in non-serious mental illness populations, and antipsychotic management strategies. A very common side effect in people with psychosis is substantial weight gain. People who experience this effect are at serious risk of weight-related health problems such as diabetes and heart disease. Studies suggest that the risk of weight gain is greatest shortly after diagnosis and commencement of antipsychotic medication. The authors of this article designed a healthy living program to help control weight in young people aged 16 to 35 who had recently experienced a first episode of psychosis. The research for this article was funded by the National Institute for Health Research and was sponsored by Lancashire Care National Health Service Foundation Trust. The authors recruited people with psychosis and randomly allocated approximately half of them into the author's healthy living program. The other half continued with their usual treatment. People who took part in the program were seen on eight occasions at home by a specially trained support worker who asked participants about their motivations to lose weight, helped them to devise realistic goals and plans for achieving them, and delivered advice and information about diet and exercise. Participants were also able to join various activity groups, such as biking, walking, or gardening. The authors measured weight and waist circumference at the start of the program and at 6- and 12-month follow-up. Their body mass index, or BMI, was calculated. When the authors compared BMI of people who had been in the program with that of people who had been allocated to receive usual treatment, no difference in BMI was shown between the groups. The authors go on to discuss possible reasons why their intervention was not effective in helping people control their weight. Staging models are widely used in medicine, helping optimize treatments according to anatomical, clinical, and functional characteristics of progressive diseases. Staging is particularly useful when it is able to distinguish between early, milder clinical phenomena and those that accompany illness progression and chronicity. In bipolar disorder, staging models could not only help understand illness progression from a heuristic perspective, but also and especially help estimate prognosis and guide therapy. Considering that level of functioning is one of the most important domains of clinical staging, the assessment of functional status in bipolar patients could be a practical criterion to classify patients into distinct stages. The Functioning Assessment Short Test, or FAST, is an interviewer-administered 24-item scale that covers six specific life domains of functioning. 
The authors of this study investigated whether there are differences in FAST scores in patients who are in different clinical stages of bipolar disorder. The study was supported by grants from two government agencies in Brazil. The results showed a strong linear association between total FAST scores and clinical stages, suggesting a progressive functional decline in bipolar disorder from stage 1 through stage 4. Patients in stage 2 were more impaired in occupational functioning compared to patients in stage 1, whereas lower levels of autonomy were found in stage 4 patients than in stage 3 patients. The authors conclude that although the findings are preliminary, the scores on the FAST suggest it has a good discriminant ability to distinguish between patients in early versus late stages of bipolar disorder, and this scale could contribute useful information to a bipolar disorder staging system. Neurofeedback, an intervention that aims to train brain activity, has been suggested as a potential effective treatment for ADHD. However, the additional value of neurofeedback over currently applied ADHD treatment options on neurocognitive measures related to attention, information filtering, working memory, and planning in adolescents with ADHD remains unclear. Therefore, the authors of this article recruited male adolescents with ADHD from several mental health care institutions in the Netherlands. Their study was funded by the Netherlands Organization for Health Research and Development. Participants were randomly assigned to receive either only the treatment as prescribed by their clinical professional or additional neurofeedback training sessions. Previous studies have shown that adolescents with ADHD have relatively more slower brain waves, that is, theta, which are related to a state of drowsiness, and less faster brain waves, that is, sensory motor rhythm, which are related to attention and information filtering. Therefore, the aim of the neurofeedback training was to reduce the amount of theta and to increase the amount of sensory motor rhythm as measured on the middle of the head. After the intervention period, 45 adolescents who received neurofeedback sessions over a 25-week period, in addition to their standard treatment, were compared to 26 adolescents who received only standard treatment. At post-intervention, both groups showed improvement on measures of attention and motor speed. No improvement was seen on measures related to planning and working memory. The adolescents who received neurofeedback did not outperform the adolescents who did not receive neurofeedback. The authors conclude that current results do not support the use of neurofeedback as add-on treatment to improve cognitive functioning for adolescents with ADHD. In this systematic review, the authors examined the efficacy of repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, or RTMS, in patients with treatment-resistant depression, which they defined as major depressive disorder with two or more prior antidepressant treatment failures. 
These patients are less likely to recover with medications alone and often consider non-pharmacologic treatments such as RTMS. The study received funding support from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. The authors comprehensively reviewed the available literature for studies comparing RTMS with a sham control treatment in patients with treatment-resistant depression who were aged 18 years or older. They focused their study on changes in depressive severity, response rates, and remission rates. The meta-analyses indicated that RTMS was beneficial compared with sham for all outcomes. RTMS produced a greater decrease in depressive severity, averaging a clinically meaningful decrease on a measure of depression compared with sham. RTMS resulted in greater response rates. Those receiving RTMS were more than three times as likely to respond as patients receiving sham. Finally, RTMS was more likely to produce remission. Patients receiving RTMS were more than six times as likely to achieve remission as those receiving sham. How long these benefits persist remains unclear. The authors concluded that for patients with major depressive disorder who had two or more antidepressant treatment failures, RTMS is a reasonable, effective consideration. Prolongation of the QT interval can lead to serious adverse events such as torsades de pointe, a potentially fatal ventricular arrhythmia. Medications are among the many risk factors for heart rate corrected QT prolongation. While older antidepressants have been linked to QTC prolongation, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, have had safer cardiac profiles. But recently, the safety of SSRIs have been called into question. However, the questions raised have been based on single study results. No prior work has pooled data from previous clinical trials and systematically evaluated the QTC prolonging effect of SSRIs using a meta-analytic approach. To learn more about the possible link between SSRIs and QTC prolongation, the authors of this article conducted a meta-analysis. They analyzed 16 studies with 25 distinct subsets, including data on over 4,000 patients. Some of the studies compared SSRIs to placebo, while others compared SSRIs to tricyclic antidepressants. SSRIs were associated with a dose-dependent increase in QTC interval of approximately 6 milliseconds compared to placebo. Tricyclic antidepressants were associated with a QTC increase of 7 milliseconds as compared to SSRIs. With respect to specific SSRI agents, citalopram was associated with significantly greater QTC prolongation than sertraline, paroxetine, and fluvoxamine. The findings were not limited to any single study. On the basis of the study results, the authors do not recommend caution or additional monitoring when using SSRIs other than citalopram in the general population. 
the finding that citalopram might prolong the QTC to a greater extent than do other SSRIs may warrant caution and consideration of alternative agents in populations with QTC prolongation at baseline or with other torsades de point risk factors. Suicidality is a serious and common complication in patients with major depressive disorder. Guided by safety information, regulatory bodies have issued warnings highlighting the potential risk of suicide with all antidepressants, especially in children and younger adults. In a study funded by AstraZeneca, Weissler and colleagues evaluated the incidence of suicidality during treatment with quetiapine XR. Data were pooled from six randomized acute monotherapy and adjunct therapy studies of adult patients with major depressive disorder. Also included were an acute monotherapy study in elderly patients and an adult maintenance study. Patients at high risk of suicide at screening or baseline were excluded from the studies. Across the acute adult studies, the overall incidence of suicidality was 0.7% for both quetiapine XR and placebo. The authors conclude that they found no increased risk of suicidality compared with placebo following treatment with quetiapine XR in patients with major depressive disorder considered not to be of high suicide risk at baseline. However, monitoring for suicidality remains important for all patients. Bipolar depression is the most prevalent and debilitating mood state of bipolar disorder. However, many barriers to effective management exist, such as limited treatment options and lack of knowledge of effective assessment techniques. This commentary summarizes the content and outcomes of a CME program designed to provide learners with an update on the best practices for managing bipolar depression. The authors also discuss areas of future educational needs related to the assessment and treatment of bipolar depression. This month's Practical Psychopharmacology column looks at the question of why electroconvulsive therapy is effective. The article serves as a primer to help clinicians both understand the mechanism of action of ECT and explain its effectiveness to their patients who may be hesitant. Dr. Andrade notes, however, that further research in this area is needed for a complete answer. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read Dr. Andrade's column and participate in the discussion. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the May issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast your place for psychiatry sound bites.